this landmine The fault lines crack And the fists they fly In the heat of the night I touch the falling sky Hello again, welcome back to Tell You What, the podcast, where we talk with young songwriters about the craft of songwriting, live music performance, and assorted topics of interest. Our guests on this installment are Ellie Buckland and Molly Obamsawin, who, along with Issa Burke, make up the group Lula Wiles. The three members of Lula Wiles first met at Fiddle Camp in Maine when they were youngsters. And they formed the band as classmates years later at Berklee College of Music. They've recently released their second album and their first release on the revered Smithsonian Folkways label called What Will We Do? It is a great, great record. Lula Wiles have a lot going for them. Great technical skills, multi-instrumental abilities, wonderful harmonies, insightful and socially conscious songwriting. And all of these strengths are multiplied by their ability to work together and bring out the best in each other. This is a topic we've discussed with a number of our guests, and I always find it interesting, that of collaboration in the creative process. We may tend to think of creative pursuits as a solitary endeavor, but in the world of music, collaboration is everywhere. On the podcast, we have heard different permutations of this dynamic. In an earlier episode, we heard from Cordovas, who live together as a band. In our previous episode, Chris and Denny, who are partners in life as well as in the Western Den, spoke of their collaborative process. Today we hear from three friends since childhood as they talk about how their process has developed over time. It was a fun and informative discussion. So let's get to it. Here's our talk with Molly and Ellie of Lula Wilds. To tell you what podcast. Thank you for taking the time to meet with us. Thank you for having us. And tell you what uh, studios were actually been banished from the Tell You What Towers. We're in the <laughs> auxiliary annex of the Megaplex, but I hope you <laughs> are comfortable anyway. Oh yeah, it's still pretty luxurious. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks again for meeting with us. Um, you're currently in the middle of a tour, right? Yeah. Brings you through Chicago. It's yes. true. Day. Four yeah. of a five-week tour. Wow! Yeah. So you're looking at we're the beginning. Fresh. Yeah, yeah. We're morale fresh. is still high. And you look very fresh. I'll say <laughs> Thank that. You. I just showered. Thank you. All right, well, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get Me to too. it. Let's talk about your early years, music, in and around your lives, and your growing up. According to your origin story, at least some combination of you met at. String camp is this yeah right? fiddle so, camp fiddle camp. This is in Maine, mm-hmm. right? So, for those of us who aren't from Maine, 
what what is string camp? What happens yeah. there? Is this a family thing or is it like a kids only situation? Or we'll it's set the scene. All Please. of the above. And I will say too that fiddle camps exist all over the country and really even all over the world too. Like lots of traditional music um, string camps. Um, like there's you know Alistair Fraser out in California has Valley of the Moon and High Sierra Camp and like the Mark O'Connor camps, right? So fiddle camp as like a concept yes. in the traditional music community is every, when you're like, oh yeah, I, we're fiddle camp friends. Everyone knows what you're talking about, right? But I think outside of that world, people are like, what the heck is that? Is that real? Right. So yeah, please, set our, the scene. <laughs> our fiddle camp is set in the woods of down east Maine. Um, mm-hmm. The tall pines abound. And um, the camp is for, it's called Main Fiddle Camp, but it has all kinds of instruments that participate in traditional roost music. Um, and Mostly the, string instruments. Mostly then. string, but, but also there's penny whistle exactly. and accordion, and mm-hmm. um, there's some piano. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically anything that you would hear in music that comes through Maine, which ends up being a lot of Quebecois, but a lot of maritime music as well, mm-hmm. like Cape Breton. Mm-hmm. Um, Celtic, Scottish, Celtic, yeah. yeah. So lots of different stuff, and even like some. There's like a main ragtime history, which oh, I wow. find yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So there's contra dances, there's fiddle classes, there's jams, there's all that stuff. And the three of us started going to that camp at a young age, um, in our yeah. preteen years. Okay. And it was really cool as a kid because you go and you end up. Like, if you're not there with your parents, right. right, and you ask, like, which age, and so it's, it's yeah, it's, there are, there are kids, like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, but then also, like, gaggles of teens, mm-hmm. and then there, but then there are also people in their 20s and 30s just going to learn fiddle, or, like, with us, a lot of people that, like, started going when they were younger and then have sort of graduated to teaching or assistant teaching, oh, okay. and then there are, like, the veteran um, main musicians who are like in their 60s, 70s, 80s who mm-hmm. have been like playing in main trad bands forever. Mm-hmm. Like Isa, who's not uh, podcasting with us today, <laughs> but the third member of our band, her parents um, taught there, right? Okay. Her parents are like um, New England folk uh, sweethearts. Yeah, folk yes. sweethearts, mm-hmm. yes. And they. So that's how Issa started going, right? Because her parents were there. So at the camp, you're learning <laughs> fiddle, but are you also learning vocal techniques, other styles, so, song, yeah, writing, there's, choral? Mm-hmm, there's vocal. It's all folk music. Okay. So no really. choral. No music, choral. Okay. But there are singing classes, too. And um, That's a relatively new addition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, folks who lead singing groups and stuff. And then also around the fire at night, it's mm-hmm. like very, it's a it's a tradition, I think, across fiddle camps of the world to um, sing songs around the fire and mm-hmm. um, late into the night mm-hmm. and early into the morning. Yeah, and a lot of them are, in, in, in the case of Maine Fiddle Camp, there are a lot of like logging songs in oh, the wow. history of Maine, and that, but then also and sea, sea shanties, shanties. because yep. it's right on the coast. And then there are, you know, immigrants from, yeah, from Europe were coming, and so there's a lot of, like, you can trace a lot of the songs that are, you know, traditional in Maine to Ireland or Scotland right. or, you know... Um, were your parents musicians mm-hmm. also? Are, yeah, yeah, all three so of all three of you yeah. had parents as yeah. musicians. Mm-hmm. So they get it. They're not... No one was like, 
wait, how will you pay your... No one was, like, stressed mm-hmm. that well, we were going to be professional does musicians. Does this mean <laughs> that from a young age you both saw life in music as a possibility? Yeah. Like, it was always, like, yeah, this is and probably what I'm going to do because well, you were brought up that way? I don't... F- personally, this is Ellie talking, and, like, personally, I didn't... How do I say this? It wasn't like, oh, I'm just definitely going to do that. But I think at a certain point, I became aware that the idea of being a professional music was not necessarily normal to other people. Like, to me, I was just like, oh, yeah, that could be something I do. And at least in my, like, from early childhood in my house, we were singing all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. my dad plays guitar, and so me and my three siblings, it would be like, especially when we were so young that we weren't in school yet, like playing or singing songs with our dad was just like a regular part of life. And like we would, we had all these songs we would sing in the car and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. I think my parents would like whip out when we were like fighting on like, yeah, exactly. On like long drives. It's like, Oh, let's sing all these um, like rounds and things. And, and so, but I was just like so stoked on music from a really young age and like started playing the fiddle when I was five I do remember a moment where I re- I was, like, really stressed about what I was going to do in college, and I remember, like, meeting my best friend in the art room, and I had had this, what felt like an epiphany, but now I'm just like, well, yeah, uh, duh, you know, where I was just like, Abby, my like, who's my best friend, I'm like, I should just go to music school, like, wow, you know, and... and I think main fiddle camp, I'll sort of wrap up my answer, but main fiddle camp, when we were, we, you know, we were really all into like Joy Kill Sorrow and Crooked Still and lots of these like progressive neo-trad bands at the time that were like young and cool, but playing folk music. Right. Um, like I saw myself in them, like in Sarah Jarose and I was really into Alison Krauss, like these, I saw these artists and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that, mm-hmm. you know, when I was like 15, 16. Well, did you always see the life of a professional musician as the path for you? Yeah, um, not always. I grew up, and my dad's a musician, and so I did grow up going to his, like, cool bar gigs that I would always sit in the audience and be like, Dad's so cool up there, you know? Um, But my mom's side of the family is pretty intellectual and, like, academic, I guess, so that was always, it, it always appeared as an option to me too and my mom's side of the family really always accentuated the importance of that kind Mm -hmm. of education so it was sort of and whereas my dad didn't go to music school or anything he was just like a lifetime musician played with his dad like the the old style way um so it was pretty half and half and I think that is reflected by what I ended up doing which is going to Berkeley for a year and then going to Dartmouth for four years right but I did definitely see myself doing music and at a certain point just sort of decided like yeah that is what I actually want to do totally. and I didn't grow up exclusively um like seeing myself as a trad musician because the upright bass is sort of has a larger territory I think okay. than than just trad music and my dad played a lot of jazz and blues so as I always, opposed to a fiddle yeah a fiddle yeah. Right. and fiddles can do more than that you know but, but especially going to fiddle camp you were like oh the fiddle this means this yeah, yeah totally so at what point did you start writing music well I didn't write I didn't start writing songs until I think I was 19 okay um and I wasn't writing tunes either 
what's interesting is like what Molly just said made me think of the fact that you know I was just talking about all my like musical inspiration in the context of like oh yeah fiddle camp or like these drag bands but also like with we and we've talked about this before in the band like my dad like we listen to a lot of like Bonnie Raitt and a lot of like sort of like female more like pop stuff like I was really into Michelle Branch so okay. there was this other part of my like dream of a musician where I could like also see myself sort of as Being like a, a pop songwriter, rock singer right? or something yeah. right but then the like more what I was into and like much more of a day to day thing was like playing the fiddle mm-hmm. right but but I never felt like the fiddle as the way I could fully express myself musically. I always felt like there was something sort of missing. Right. And, like, I didn't even f- fully understand that or conceptualize it until I was introduced to um, people uh, and peers in my first year of college at Berkeley who were writing songs. And I went to this music camp called miles of music camp where the whole point was like the combination of creativity in in writing your own music and also how that fits into like coming from a traditional world or there were a lot of you know there were folks from like la and nashville who were like oh i've always just written like rock or pop music but like how whoa all these in the traditional world there. there are people who have spent their whole careers playing the traditional yeah. songs without ever yeah, writing Yeah, exactly. Material, right? And that's and there's yeah. also, so legitimate. Yeah. There's yeah. also folks who write uh, in the style of traditional music and like mm-hmm. add to, especially in Maine, I think we got a lot of exposure to that, like folks who are writing sort of New England traditional music yes. in the current moment. Yeah, right? I think that something yeah. is also often forgotten is like, like Celtic music, Scottish music, really like, even, and American old time music, like, blues all of these like root styles they're living traditions yes. right there yeah. there are actively scottish musicians writing new fiddle tunes and that doesn't mean they're like contempt like that's traditional music okay. mm-hmm. i i think yeah you know, like sumi yeah. or something yeah, yeah totally. but but specifically with the, like someone wrote those traditional yeah, tunes at some point <laughs> you know? right yes. you know even if now they're just like anonymous they're, they're or weren't found on a stone tablet yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and <laughs> if they were was. somebody wrote that down <laughs> exactly. too yeah um exactly. but specifically with like the writing of songs like i i had this sort of like eye-opening experience of realizing like oh wait if I just want to be a songwriter like there's no nothing stopping you there I can just literally write a song right like I don't have to like go through some like weird process and and I will I'll cite my my friend Maya DeVitri who used to be in this band called the Stray Birds Mm -hmm. and is now doing a solo um she's she's working as a solo artist and she was really encouraging you know she was just like oh yeah like you like Brandy Carlisle you like you know, like Patty Griffin and you like Bonnie Wright, like, you know, and I could, I saw her writing songs. Like I was always over at her house and like, she'd be like, Oh yeah, I just worked on this new song. And I was seeing that in a way that all of a sudden, you know, or I was seeing writing songs as a thing that I could do all of a sudden. And so that's when I started writing songs. And that's when it all, for me, fell into place. of like, Oh my gosh. Like I didn't even know that like fiddle was only like 75 was feeling 75% of this like space yes. in me artistically and then as soon as I wrote songs I was like oh well this is 110% like go. fuck the fiddle no offense <laughs> you know you're giving it that like, 110% yeah, I don't know it, and it feel it like to write songs like just like feels so good and like fills me up like yeah. on a spiritual level I think and especially always being a singer right like my parents 
have always been like, oh yeah, like you were singing before you could even talk, you know? Right. And so singing has always been like a full expression, I think, of myself, right? And so being able to connect that to the thoughts and feelings I have and then make it into a song has was just... Like it blew my mind. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's Maybe enough Molly, about do you me. Remember yeah. When you started writing your own music, um, yeah, I used to. And when I was in high school, I got really obsessed with poetry, okay. and yeah. so I always sort of saw myself as being a writer in that sense. And um, then, in the middle of high school, I started do, getting involved in jazz. I went to this jazz camp that was sort of focused on avant-garde like post-bop jazz which is really a rare thing for like high school students to be exposed to like it wasn't like learning the blues for 9th through 12th (laughs) you know it was like okay we're like digging into Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry and welcome 15 year olds you know (laughs) and so get hip yeah (laughs) exactly and so I was inspired by that and saw really clear connections between that era of creative music and creative writing and so I saw myself as like sort of entering the the combination of writing and music through that lens, through that mm-hmm. little uh, window. Yes. Um, and I was involved in this group, this like creative group called Amplified Cactus Salon mm-hmm. with some of my friends oh, from Portland, Maine, my God. and and Brooklyn. And it was basically sort of a game of artistic telephone, creative telephone, where. Someone would make an art piece and whatever their medium was, whether it was like writing or saxophone or cooking, there were like future chefs involved and they would send in this email thread, they would send their piece and then the next person would have to do an interpretation or a response to that in whatever their medium was. And so that's when I first started like really thinking about words and music as this something is high that can, school still in high school yeah. yeah as something that can like bounce off each other and inform one another and never even thought once about writing songs okay sort of because i also i didn't sing really at all until kind of until lula wiles like well, maybe woo! a singer yeah <laughs> um, we we dragged her across the, yeah. the line seems to be working out yeah yeah oh man so good yeah um but so it wasn't that was sort of my trajectory into words and music being in the same creative realm for me personally. And then I also went to the Miles of Music songwriting and traditional music camp um, that Ellie referenced. And um, so my first year of Berkeley, I started sort of trying to put words into songs in a melodic way. (laughs) And I did. Did you feel as though you were, at that point, writing poetry that you were saying to music, or was it a different approach? It was totally different, and I still don't feel like I can write poetry and set it to music. That's something that I'm working on, but I think just because they've always, it's never been a cohesive thing, like poetry and, and lyrics have never, I never approached it from a, like, I guess an intentionally cohesive, Mm -hmm. uh, direction angle i'm still trying to figure out how to do that so no it's just it's kind of still a mystery to me how to write songs even though i'm doing it (laughs) that's the beauty of it yeah exactly that's why we're here Uh, yeah exactly (laughs) um let's talk about how the three of you uh collaborate in Mm. the writing process um can you talk a bit about i'm sure there's not any one way that the songs come about but maybe about uh, some of the ways that you have collaborated in writing songs. Yeah. yeah. So at first we would just write 
on our own and eventually bring it to the band um, and arrange it. And mm-hmm. it was like mostly a, a really individual process or yeah. with like a certain lyric or something would be like, Hey guys, like, what do you think about this? I'm not satisfied. You know, just like really specific. Um, like somebody would just be like, okay, these three lines, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really clearly delineated as like, oh yeah, this is on our first record, right? It's like, this is written by Molly. This is okay. written by Ellie. And there's very little mm-hmm. collaboration. And yeah. And so that's how it was for a long time. Like at, the beginning of our band and I think one thing that I've thought about recently is that I feel like it it had to do with the fact that at that time we all were I mean maybe not as confident in our own voices as writers like I think there was like kind of a sense of privacy there like this ability of like okay well I'm just gonna write this song and any of that vulnerability that I'm feeling about it like it's gonna be over here in my bedroom alone with myself and then once I feel good about it I'll bring it Mm -hmm. to the band right right? and I think do you agree I agree yeah and I think over time we've all grown to trust each other more with all our vulnerabilities and being like well maybe these feelings are stupid and all the words that I use to try to describe them are stupid but now we're like that's okay let's just share it anyway yeah because yeah it's an exercise in friendship building I think that one of the things that's hard about writing songs, at least personally, when you're writing them on your own, is that you run up against your ego all the time, right? You're, like, constantly, like, telling... It's so hard to shut off the part of you that is the critical part of you, the editor, Mm -hmm. right? I had a songwriting mentor that just talked about, yeah, like, the creator versus the editor, right? And, like, you just have to turn off your editor. And I think as a... To produce mm -hmm. the thing right as a group of three it's so much easier to say like yes and you know the old improv practice yeah it's just allow the other person to be the editor yeah yeah exactly exactly but just to sort of keep that energy going and yes and and yes and and then after it's you have a full version you go back and whoever wants to like it's so much easier to get to that first draft with three people people. being like yes this is good Uh, and in terms of the like yeah, yes, this is good, but all, but that concept of the ego, right? It's mm-hmm. like when you are with three other people, just the stakes seem lower. Like when mm-hmm. you're cool. with yourself, there's this thing of like, j- just that if you come up with an idea that your editor or you're like the part of you that's like, you're the worst, <laughs> the inner like <laughs> inadequacy complex, right? Like welcome to my neuroses, you know, but like um, th- that person or like that voice is saying like, oh God, you can't write this song. You're never going to write a good right. song again. Like that's so this is so stupid. dumb. I can't believe you said that. It builds yeah. and builds yeah. and builds and then you just feel like utter mm-hmm. shit. With with the the other gals, like that part, at least for me, goes away because it's just like, oh, I can just have this idea, and, like, if it's not good, they're not going to hate me, and also they'll just come up with something. Like, we'll just come up with something better. That's great. Also, I feel like a mediocre idea is often, like, a piggyback for... A seed for a good idea. Okay, well, hold that constant and go from there, (laughs) you know? Well, that's mediocre. (laughs) Let's see what we can do. But on your own, you might have the mediocre idea and be like, I quit. (laughs) Like, I am not writing a sound today. Let's talk about, you both spent time at Berkeley, and now I assume that you did possibly some academic work in songwriting, like yeah. two classes. So we had 
Denny and Chris from the Western Dead oh, cool. on an episode last month, and we talked about this a little bit about the academic approach to songwriting, like what you can learn mm-hmm. and what is taught in a classroom right. setting at a school like Berkeley. Can you talk a little bit about, about that experience, what you can learn in that environment or what is taught and maybe what you can't? So I was in the songwriting program, like right. major for a while, and I, I didn't graduate Berkeley, but um, I really loved it Be, in, in a lot of ways. I loved the, there were lame things about it, which I'll say, but, but what I did love was the, the conscious way and like really detailed way that in those classes and with your professors and with the students, there was like, we, there was value put on dissecting the craft of songwriting because personally, one of my frustrations I have is like, when somebody's like, oh, yes, this song just came to me, and then they, like, play the song, and I'm like, but that is just a bad song. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, but, like, cool, that song came to you, but, like, (laughs) I think that in so many ways, really good songwriters have worked at what they're doing, and I feel like there's, like, in some ways, can be a disrespect for the work that goes into good songs if someone is just critical of, like, why are you learning that in college? Like, that can't be learned. I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, but I I think that there's something to be said on both sides, right? Like, the, I think what you can't learn at Berkeley is, like, maybe just to, like, have emotion and, like, okay. write a, be, be writing a song for, like, the trueness of the feeling and the, the desire to connect with people, right? Like, I think that there are people at Berkeley who are just writing songs, like, for the money or yes. something, right? Like, to well, immediately move to Nashville or LA. school yes. in that yeah. sense, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. yes. And so maybe what you can't learn in those classes is, like, the truth. How to, yeah, yeah, like, right, you can learn the three chords, but you can't learn the exactly. truth, right? But, but so you're I, the yeah. discipline, maybe. Yeah, yeah, this discipline, and, and is what you can learn. What you yes. can learn, yes. and I've found that to be so helpful when I was talking before of, like, the voice in my head saying, like, well, you're the worst, mm-hmm. you know, you're never going to write a good song. I, without, I don't think I would maybe have come to this as easily without Berkeley, but, like, the fact that I'm like, well, Maybe I feel this way, but I am going to keep working on this song for another hour. Like, and I am going to come back to it tomorrow. And what I'll say, and then I think Molly wants to say something, but like what I'll say about what I did learn at Berkeley is like the ability to like dice, um, figure out what the tools are, right? So it's like, okay, when I look at this Paul Simon song or when I look at this, um, I mean, like John Prine song, or I'm having a hard time coming up with great examples, but. Um, you're like, oh, they used this chord in this moment and these are the lyrics that go with that chord and that created a kind of emotion that you wouldn't have with a different chord, okay. right? Like, yes. So the concept of like re- really connecting your lyrical and your chord and your um, the song structure, thinking really, really detailed about um, rhyme scheme, like being mm-hmm. able the concept of like rhyme scheme being something that would create movement in your song okay. more than just... Not more, but, like, along with the structure or the chord progression. But, like, that, you know, being creative with your rhyme scheme can be, can, like, put spotlights on different things in your lyrics, right? So, I really loved that, like, nerdy stuff. Yes. Um, But as far as the, like, sitting down to write every day and, like, the eating, the desire to write that eats away at you and basically, like, if you don't do it, like, I feel like the worst person ever, right? Like... That I didn't learn at Berkeley. That's, That's I think you. just because I feel like drawn to be a writer. Yes. That was meandering. 
What did Molly yeah. have to say? I actually, I'm good. I don't have yeah. anything to say. It was a good yeah. meander. I'll accept yeah. it. So let's talk about the new album. What will we do? Woo-hoo. I think it's fabulous, by the way. I've Thanks. really been enjoying it. When I looked up the credits, I see you three, uh, Lula Wiles produced the album with Dan Cardinal. That's that right? true. Who, by mm-hmm. the way, did a great job with the Western Dan album. Yeah, yeah too. he is. Can you talk about working with a producer and also, uh, uh, I assume it was important to you all to be producers as well. Mm-hmm, so yeah, how did that sure. work and what, what were your feelings about that? Last time we had, we technically co-produced, but I think we did cede a lot of our control to uh, our, our producer on the first album. Um, mostly, in my opinion, because we weren't really confident in our skills as being stepping in as producer of our own music and we were really inexperienced in the studio like we experienced in the studio yeah Yeah. and just like wanted yeah wanted another set of ears and opinions on our music Mm -hmm. um somebody to sort of drive the bus a little bit to help us along that exactly but this time i think we were a lot more confident and sort of wanted to take the bull by the horns and be like okay like these are all new songs to us first of all because we wrote them within six or eight months of recording them we we set the recording date and then we're like okay i guess we need songs (laughs) we were definitely at least i remember being hesitant um to we, we like sort of thought about a different a bunch of different people and i remember being hesitant to like give someone else who has a really definitive style or sound of Mm -hmm. aesthetic of production, the control over the songs that we wrote. Cause I was like, well, you don't know our sound any better than we do. And in fact, we probably know our sound and what we want that, what kind of, I don't know, soundscape or something we want for this album better than anyone just walking off the street that we might not even have a real relationship with. Mm -hmm. But maybe we like the records that they've produced or something, right? Right. Yes. Because I think we wanted to be able to really have agency in the studio mm-hmm. and with decisions of arrangement, but also production and the yep. way it was recorded and like the whole flow. But yeah. I think overall, we're just so pumped that we did the album like ourselves. We played all the mm-hmm. instruments except for a Moog track that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no synth no, skills? Yeah, <laughs> no. It was just all us. And Issa whipped out her, her banjo skills, yes. unearthed her banjo and then, capacities. Yeah. So all um, us except, and then Sean, our drummer, right? Right. we yeah, don't exactly. play. We okay. don't play drums. Yeah. Well, Issa does play drums, but right. just not, <laughs> not in Lula Wild. <laughs> Issa and I have a great. By the um, way, Issa is smiling from the other <laughs> yeah. room. She is currently protecting her voice. She has some laryngitis. She looks fabulous, but she's not allowed to say anything. So yeah. she's here in spirit. You yes. might have her. You might hear her like cough every so often <laughs> in the background. Is, is that an answer? Well, yeah, and an and yeah. but specifically Dan, we we liked. We wanted to work with Dan. Right. In the in the end, we decided to work with him because, well, a he he is in Boston. Mm-hmm. He is the owner and you know primary engineer at the Studio Dimension Sound Studios in Jamaica Plain, which is a area of Boston, and that's where the Western Den made their record. Right. Darling Side has made a lot of records there. The Ballroom Thieves, um, Bruce Molsky, Joe Walsh, like. Um, you know, and Dan has worked with like Josh Ritter on the road and it is, is just like a prolific sound guy. Right. Um, but, um, so, so he really intimately knows mm-hmm. sort of acoustic music from an engineering perspective, but then also has a lot of experience with folks sort of 
going beyond that maybe right. folks who started there and went beyond or More just indie, like indie yeah. mm-hmm. indie musicians so i think his sensibilities and where we were at at the time of recording in terms of like positioning ourselves between indie and folk or whatever yeah, we are um, it was a good match yeah and and i think we were able to sit down with him before making the record and be like, this is the record we want to make. Like, we have really clear ideas, right? We want it to sound organic. We want it not to be too polished. We don't, like... And we had examples of records that we felt like, I mean, these are great, but they're too polished, right? And even some that, like, he had done, like, he had worked on. We were like, hey, this thing, it's, like, great, but that's not the vibe. But this thing you've done, we really like that. Or, you know, and then we had our, like, vibe. So he bought it from the start. Yes, and... And he was so on board, on board yeah. with like, yes, let's collaborate as a mm-hmm. foursome to make a record that right. we're really proud of. Um, well, it, so that was fabulous. It worked out very well. I think I, so. I have to compliment you on the ability you have uh, on this record to write about some difficult topics. Uh, I'm talking about specifically about songs like Hometown and Morphine. Hmm. I think this takes a very deft touch to be able to write as kind of the empathetic observer uh, Mm -hmm. narrator without um, sounding um, let's say trite Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about that process about writing about these topics in that way yeah it's interesting that you mentioned those two because I feel as though they're quite related and I think that you and I Molly had many conversations like a few conversations about those two songs and kind of how they relate just Mm -hmm. in that the process that we both went through to write them, we ended up doing a lot of... Um, so you wrote... I, you so wrote, I primarily wrote Hometown. And I, Molly and I wrote, wrote Morphine. Morphine. Okay. And, and on it's cre- the, the songwriting credit on Hometown is actually all three of us plus my sister, Abby. Okay. Um, but the, the, like, the whole song was mine, but then all of them contributed various lyrical concepts. And okay. so it felt way better to, you know, like have it be a, a co and it was collaborative um yeah but in terms of like conceptual uh collaboration like i remember specifically having conversations about hometown when we were on our writing retreat and being like how do i convey for instance how do i convey yeah. the disagreements that happen between individuals about politics in rural america where the the political landscape is so complex right and um there's so there's a lot of ideology and just like really firm beliefs that people take very personally right and like why things are the way that they are for rural people and depending on your rural situation right and I remember talking about this and just how much emotion is behind it and how easy it would be to misstep in writing about it and um I remember our discussion going to the place of like well we don't have to talk about these individuals and like who's Mm -hmm. right and who's wrong but the system overall like sort of scaling back zooming out on the whole context that 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 this conversation this disagreement is happening in and being like we we can write really concretely and objectively about the system that creates these disagreements yeah and this is about hometown specifically and I, I, I don't want to yeah. oversimplify it, but yeah. you're talking about showing the situation rather than telling about it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Or, or yeah. showing it rather than saying, like, this is what yeah, is, true. like, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah telling and someone. removing the individual. Feelings. Yes. Yeah. And, and the way I had had that song structured at that point was, like, a lot of the, like, it felt like vignettes, right? Like, it, it was like, okay, here's the verse about 
a brother and the sister and like addicted to drugs and the you know and then she's like having the baby that also is then addicted and and like the the idea of like a working class mother or but then also just the like picture in the pictures in Yankee magazine and down east magazine of like oh you know small town life vacation land vacation land right. life right and you're like that's not a, that's a million dollar home yeah, yeah. like yeah. what are nobody lives no there. one lives <laughs> like that those are people that live on the coast like that have billions of dollars it's yeah. like that's not what that's actually the bush family lives. yeah like that's not actually <laughs> rural life that's or that's not the whole picture of rural right. life right yeah. and um but I had I was really struggling with like how to put that all together and specifically I was like I don't want like I'll, you know I'll say this I think also because it's unlikely that he'll um listen to it and also um I feel fine talking about this but like a lot of the inspiration for that song was from my brother right like we disagree uh, you know fundamentally on most things but right. I still love him right mm -hmm. and and he loves me right and we support each other and we w wish well for each other but it's really hard to, you know, like have a family member who, you know, and he, he lives in Maine and he drives a truck and he like does his life in rural Maine. And, um, and so I was like, I want somebody who, um, somebody like my brother to listen to this song and not feel alienated and right. not We're feel attacked. as though I am attacking them. Yeah. Right. And I was really struggling with how to do that because, and that's exactly what I think you're saying of like, how to, you know, sing about it deftly and yes. without it being trite or, or preachy. So you had a listener in mind. Yeah, That's yeah, where I'm like, I want person. Kyle to be able to listen to this. And, and like, other people in my family who I, you know, who we disagree, but we love each other, right? Like, that I want them to be able to listen to it and say, like, yes, this is actually how it is in rural... I mean, in our case, we're talking about rural Maine, but we think it's true in most of the rural places across the country right. this could be true this like like our whole goal was to write something that would be empathetic and and um and not preachy well it yeah. worked some of the more socially conscious songs in a minute, but let's lighten it up for a second. <laughs> I would talk about the song Nashville Man, one of right. my favorites on the record. Nice. It has kind of a Nashville sound musically to yeah. it, I think, and a kind of a traditional country theme about the woman who's waiting for mm -hmm. someone who is yeah. probably not coming back. Yeah. Or maybe uh, never came around. Uh, maybe, but, but the vocal Great. delivery is, is strong, I oh, think. That's so hilarious. it's kind of that's well it's kind of a counterpoint I think to yeah. the what is being sung about. So Molly, I think you wrote this. Yes, Maybe you can I talk did. about this song a little bit. Um, yeah, I, it's funny. I never really have that much to say about this song. Um, other than it's almost 100% true and, uh, it blows to be ghosted by a man. <laughs> um, and I wanted to write, I, I, 
can't. I'm incapable of writing love songs. So I, uh, maybe because I have such contempt for my own feelings. Um, so. Isa <laughs> <laughs> is cackling over there. Uh, she, couldn't, she couldn't stay silent. She so, um, so I wrote a song sort of depicting how I was feeling about my feelings, which was, <laughs> it was just sort of making fun of myself for right. feeling so pitiful about just, you know, wanting this man to have feelings for me and it being clear that he did not. <laughs> yeah, and I actually do remember... Well, I tell you, oh, yeah, I tell you get that. That's yeah, what I mean about the that. counterpoint yeah. because the way it's delivered is kind of set up differently from the words themselves. So mm-hmm. you kind of get that it's kind of a little bit of self-deprecation. Right, yes. in, in the tongue-in-cheek vocal performance, yes. you're saying. Yes. Interesting. But yeah. I think also the, yeah. the combination of the like sort of on its own, the lyrics could be, like, really earnest, mm-hmm. right? Of, like, what could be better than the two of us together, you know? Like, yeah. there, if, if you look at the, like, what is the meaning of that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's so earnest and heartfelt, yeah. and yet it's delivered, not just in mm-hmm. your vocal delivery, yeah. but, like, the song form and mm-hmm. the, the way the song sounds yeah. is, like, much more lighthearted, right? right so it right. is this great dichotomy there. Yes. I think it's great. I'm down in the demon, waiting on a stationary letter from a So, let's talk about the song Love's Gone Wrong. This brings me back to something mm-hmm. I want to ask about the album and your, your collaborative process because the song starts out as kind of a up-tempo folk song, but then mm-hmm. at the end it kind of changes into this beautiful choral part. So, mm-hmm. how does that happen in the writing slash recording process? At what point do... I mean, because those vocals are like part of the song to mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. right? So... When you're writing the song as one person, how are you thinking about how those voices are going to be part of the song, if you understand my question? Totally. So that one was a, yeah, a three-way co-write. Okay. From the, not from the beginning necessarily. Ellie wrote a verse and a chorus, mm-hmm. and then it started becoming a co-write. And Issa came up with the outro. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the outro, that's what I was saying. Yes. Yeah, yes. so... <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, that song is interesting because it happened in, like, two chunks, and they were very far apart from each other. Like, like I started writing that song before, like, the first record even came out. Like, I was, I had played it for the band, just the first, this one verse and a version of the, that chorus, like, while we were in the studio for record one, but it wasn't done. And then the three of us all got together, finished the first verse, and, like, finished the chorus, and then, like, months went by, like, if not a year, and then wow. mm-hmm. Issa and I were like, okay, we're re- we're fi- we need to finish this song for the album. We really want it on the album. So we sat down and wrote the second verse together, and as far as, like, the arrangement in terms of, yeah, I love this question, but, like, how much does the vocal arrangement go in, come into the writing, basically? Right. And we realized, we were like, okay, this is going to be... We, we we realized pretty early on that we were like, we want this to be kind of a duet style vocal, right? Like, um, and then, and the three part will happen like a, for a lot of it, right? But then the idea for that outro, we specifically were like, we want to write something where it like changes tempo and potentially changes key and then just feels like really, really different. And we brainstormed a lot about like, well, okay, what will be the thing that kind of like, 
sort of sums up the song, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, and 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 Issa came up with "There's never going to be a right time," and it was just in like the early stages of brainstorming. I think we like tried to come up with something better, but we were just like, "No, that is the best. That's great." And so, so it's as, kind of like a bridge kind of yes, lyric. Yes. Well, it, so yes. we call it the Broutro. Okay. Because the <laughs> bridge outro right. and. As in, yeah, like, because a bridge of the song, like, super new music, and it's, like, a new concept, right? Um, But when we were writing it, we tried, we kind of worked on this, like, basically, it's, like, it changes keys, but it's the same chord progression as the verse in the original key. Okay. Like, the... You already um, lost me, but... Yeah, whatever. And I don't know. I you sort of... I'm sure some of our listeners will understand. I lost me, too. Don't worry. And, um, but as Issa and I were arranging it we were sort of like okay how can we extend we wanted to extend the chord progression in a way that would like set the vocal slightly different each time and and that ended up getting worked out in the studio like there were a lot of different ideas like I think Dan was wanting us to do it even more times or like sort of having an overlap Mm -hmm. thing in the vocals but what ended up what we feel like ended up the best was just this like um Slow build. Slow build. And Issa and I were, when we were writing it, just the two of us with like our guitars, we were hearing that as three-part harmony. We were like, this will just be like, we knew it would be like epic, right? Because it's going to slow down and then this vocal thing. Um, So the, we were thinking about the vocal arrangement while we were writing it. Um, Yeah. Traditional song, right? Well, Irish. it is a traditional it is song, song but you and reinterpreted. Can you talk about that? Yeah, how that we wrote came about. Yeah, yeah. So Isa, it was Isa's idea to bring the song to the band, and it's one that we had heard um, friends of ours do, um, and uh, it's originally sourced to Mary Delaney, an okay. Irish ballad singer, and um, we were really drawn to it because we feel like it really sums up exactly the question that was on everyone's lips and perhaps still is in at the time that we wrote it um in 2017 yes. uh, wrote the album and yeah. what will we do etc etc yeah. exactly <laughs> you know i just definitely a window into a period of time of just sort of turmoil and questioning mm-hmm. um and 
we were really drawn to the verses, um, and they seemed just very um, sort of descriptive and apt for, you know, a timeless question of like, what will we do if we have no money? People have been feeling that way for millennia. Yes. Um, and um, one verse that was in that we decided to take out was about what will we do if we mar- marry a soldier? Mm-hmm. And we decided we just didn't want to be singing about armies, regardless of um, the original intention or message of that verse. We just decided we don't really need a verse about a soldier in here. So, though I have learned since that it's that verse is actually a sexual euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, yes. so we didn't yes. sing it and okay. we don't have to deal with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even so, though that's, we maybe wouldn't be opposed. <laughs> yeah. Um, we decided to do something equally cheeky by um, writing a verse about socialism yeah. essentially right. um, responsible economic policies begin at home is right. the joke that Isa likes to make um, but yeah so it is just like the melody and the lyrics are all the traditional thing it's okay. just we added li- our own lyrics what will we do if we marry a banker oh true to a bigger mm-hmm. bigger picture question you talk about the tra- generally if there's a way to do this the traditions that you grew up in the, and where you see your place in that tradition kind of what threads you think you're continuing are you breaking threads or, or particularly when we talk about the socially conscious parts mm-hmm. of your writing do you feel like you're carrying on a tradition or are you using the traditional styles to go to different places. That's a really hard question, but I a think good both, question, yeah. Honestly, is yeah. my answer to that mm-hmm. because I think folk music has always been socially conscious and yes. sort of documentary documenting yeah. of, of social situations and social isolation yeah. and poverty and racial mm-hmm. um, contexts. And people singing like, well, I have this hard time and my life is really hard and I'm using writing music that then becomes, you know, folk canon, like to uh, get through that, right? Like the experience of singing music with other people Mm -hmm. to get through hard times, but then it becomes, right, this documentation of Mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. So in what way do you think you're taking it to new places? Well, I've thought about this a lot um, because... Of I've been in a lot of conversations that are increasing at folk and fiddle camps, I will say, um, in the defense of the trad world. Mm-hmm. Um, conversations about race and black heritage in folk music and um, sort of problematic lyrics that have uh, somehow persevered, persevered somehow. through yeah. time. Right. It's not a mystery. American society is still racist, you know, and that's right. why. <laughs> right? Um, even if subliminally. Mm-hmm. Um but I think in a lot of ways, especially with songs like Good Old American Values, um, not to self-call too much, no, but right. We were going to get to that. Nice, so nice. So um, let's go there. <laughs> we're, I, I was really moved to take folk music and even reclaim um, tropes about Native people. I'm Native, this is Molly speaking. Okay. Um, and tropes about Native people that are so prevalent in folk music and um, songwriting and sort of flip them over and be like, 
listen to this instead. This is an anti-colonial waltz yes. that sort of is in the style of a cowboy song. Right, and right? so and, yeah, his whole thing of yeah. like this, like, are you carrying on the thread or are you yes. breaking the thread? It's right, like both. It's so amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's so that amazing song how in you particular. Did that. I think yeah. is really it, it's really well done because, like you just said, it is in waltz time. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to Berkeley, but I think I picked <laughs> yes. that up. Yes. And the production is kind of scratchy, mm-hmm. old timey, as yes. though someone were playing it on yeah. an old phonograph. Yeah. And, and we use this vintage guitar and yeah. Right, yeah, I think you mentioned yeah. the last conversation we had it maybe was uh, your grandfather's, grandfather's guitar, guitar or something yeah. like that. Yet the lyrics kind of flip everything on its head. Exactly. And I think yeah, and that was completely intentional and I think even in arrangements and rewrites like what will we do, we're taking an original and sort of timeless concept of poverty and um, sort of grappling with reality for yeah, whoever and, the singer is and we added a new verse that is very particular to right now it's it's about the bankers yes. you know yeah. we have to look at the big banks and flip that over right right and that is just very specific um context for now in the midst of a timeless traditional yeah ballad. right and like what will we do if we have a young daughter like i think that one of the other themes on this record in in that we're you know, we're all three women, but like there, I think that there are, are themes of like how, like, what does it mean to be a woman right now? Like we're grappling with that in terms of our own, like our heartbreaks or like, yeah, just how we fit as women, I think in the world. And so there's like that, that verse, right. What will we do if we have a young daughter is so, is also timeless. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, right. and I think that good old American value, going back to that, like good old American values, like I'm just such an in such awe of that song, I think specifically because of what you guys are just saying, like the way that it somehow like is so in the canon of cowboy songs, cowboy country music, and is so roasting and critical <laughs> of of country music, and I just think it's like yeah. it's incredible, and um, yeah, it's almost a trick. <laughs> <laughs> Discussion. I've learned a few things. Um, I'm looking forward to a show tonight yeah. that I'm going to see in Chicago. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I hope Issa's resting of her voice yeah. works. I'm sure it will. Yep. 
So thanks very much. Good luck on You're the rest welcome. of the tour. Much, Michael. Mike, this was so fun. Tell you what. Tell you what. <laughs> what will we do if we have no money? Oh, true lovers, what will we do then? Only haul through the town for a hungry and we'll yodel it over again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our talk with Molly and Ellie. Be sure to check out What Will We Do, Lula Wilde's great new record. They're currently on tour supporting the album, so look out for a live show as well. I've seen them perform a few times, and they've completely won the crowd over every time. Stay tuned for more episodes of Tell You What. I've just returned from a week in Austin at the South by Southwest Music Conference. I saw a lot of great new music and chatted with a few artists about the podcast, so I'm excited about some upcoming episodes. Until then, remember, music is the best. What will we do if we have no money? And will you?